passage this morning is Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 through 17. It can be found in your few Bibles on page 3, beginning on page 3. Before we read, will you pray with me that the Lord would bless the reading and preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, enlighten us by your spirit. Help me, Lord, as I open your word. May I know these truths. May I preach them appropriately, powerfully, by the working of your spirit within me. May I, too, come under conviction of what is proclaimed here. And may we, Lord, come to see more clearly hope that we have in Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Hear now the reading of God's holy word, Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 4, going to verse 17. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when, when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Bashan. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gahan. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to make it, to work it, and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. In uh, Plato's dialogue, he says that Phaedrus, Socrates, his main protagonist's main opponent in debate in his book, Phaedrus said, things are not always what they seem. The first appearance deceives many. The intelligence of a few perceives what has been carefully hidden. Did he say this about first impressions, about not really knowing someone upon first meeting them? Did he say this about arguments and reasoning, how the first answer is not usually the final answer? I'm not entirely sure, but I do believe it is an apt quote for the section of Genesis we are in today. Because what is not readily on the surface can be perceived with some careful study. And the importance of what is discovered when studied more deeply answers some pretty profound questions. Why did God create the world? Why did God 
create us. And so, as is so beautifully put about the Word of God, we could plummet steps for all eternity. My intention this morning is to dig a little bit deeper than the surface to hopefully unravel and hopefully show us what is being said to us here in our passage. And our theme is one that I hope joins together those two questions, why did God, God create the world and why did God create us? And uh, I have to admit there's a bit of plagiarism with our theme because our theme really is the answer to the first question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We were created to worship God and enjoy Him forever. We were created to worship God and enjoy Him forever. And maybe some of you are asking, how is this passage of God uh, breathing into some dust and making a man and then placing them in a garden and talking about a bunch of rivers and then telling them don't eat from this one tree tell us and communicate to us that we were created to worship God and enjoy Him forever and that's what I hope to show us. So the first point that I want to talk about this morning is a closer examination at the man. Because the transition from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 2 has brought up the question is that is there two creation accounts or is Genesis chapter 2 a zooming in on that sixth day and the moment of creating the man and that's my um, conviction that that's what Genesis 2 is. Genesis 1 is a, uh, a large picture of, of everything that God is doing and Genesis 2 it's a zoomed in picture on, on, on the creation of man and, and God's dealing with man. But we hear some more about Adam. First thing that we read is verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. This is a theme throughout the book of Genesis. This is the word, the account is called Toledoth. And in other parts of Genesis, it's, create, it's, it's translated as these are the generations. And this is the word that breaks the book of Genesis into ten sections. And this is the account of the heavens that were created. And so this is important because this is a transition in the book of Genesis. It's not a summary statement of what's come before. Verse 4 of chapter 2 is not saying, now day 1 through 7, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. No, it's saying this is the account of the heavens and the earth that were created, and that whatever follows is that account. So our passage today is the accounting of the heavens and the earth when they were created, the history. Adam, we're told, is created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no man to work the ground, streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Verse 7, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. The Lord God created, formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. So our creation is one of using the dust of the ground 
And any glory that we have, any image of God that we have, any dominion that we have is not because of the material which we were created in, but the endowment of what God has done. We read, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. That word living being means that there is something different about man than other animals, other created beings. We are living in a way that is unlike the other living creatures. We have the breath of life breathed into us. We have become a living being. We have become somebody who is capable of relating to God, having fellowship with God. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 when talking about the work of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, speaks of this moment in Genesis where we're told that God breathed the breath of life into man, into Adam, and he became a living being. There's a contrast made between the first Adam and the second Adam. And what is said is that the first Adam became a living being. Verse 45 of 1 Corinthians 15. So it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. This is important because there's a correlation given to us between Adam and Christ here in the garden that has to do with his creation. Adam is a life, uh, a, a living being, but we're said that because of the work that Christ did, because of the work that he accomplished in his death and his burial and his resurrection, that he is a life-giving spirit. That now we're made in the image of Adam, we follow in the likeness of Adam, but because we're in Christ, we're in the likeness of Christ, and we will have resurrection glory. The resurrection glory that was placed out before Adam. That even in the garden, as a living being, there was something more for Adam to attain to. But also, what is interesting about this description of the creation of man is the mention that there was no man to work the ground. There was no man to work the ground. Because we have lived so long under the curse placed upon this world and us as humanity because of the fall of our first parents in Genesis chapter 3, we have come in very many ways to think of work as a part of the fall, to think of work as a burden, to think of heaven as a release from work, think of heaven as an eternal retirement when nothing needs to be done and everything can be enjoyed. But in fact, what we read of in the Garden of Eden, what we read of in Genesis chapter 2, 
is that we were created to work the ground, and it was a positive pre-fall reality. What happens when the fall happens is the toilsome nature of work, the difficult nature of work. When God curses Adam and says, the ground is cursed because of you, and now you'll have to work it every day, he was not saying, oh, you didn't have to work before, but now you have to work. He was saying, before your work was enjoyable, it was not a burden, it was not difficult, it was what you were created for. Now, you're going to work by the sweat of your brow. Now, you're going to be toiling difficultly to try to get through, to try to do what you can. And this brings a whole different demeanor, a whole different perspective to our theology of work. Work should not be seen as a negative. Work should not be seen as part of the fall. Work should be seen as an original purpose and reason for our creation. To have the enjoyment of work. To have the pleasure of work. And it makes us think differently about the eternal state. As if uh, so many of the images given to us today of people floating on clouds and playing harps and things like that uh, make us think that all that heaven is about is leisure. All that heaven is about is, is not having to work anymore, not having to toil, not having to, 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 to suffer. And of course, those things are true. The toilsome nature of work will be gone because sin will be gone. Sin is what makes nature, sin is what makes work toilsome. But work will remain an enjoyable, pleasurable, unburdensome work. I don't know what that's going to be. I'm not entirely sure what that looks like or even what that feels like. But maybe, maybe every once in a while, when you are doing something that you love, when you are doing something that you appreciate, that you enjoy, and that you are working on it, and you're in the zone, and you're doing it, and you don't even realize how much time has passed, and you realize that, oh, I've been doing this for two hours, maybe that's a little tiny snippet. Maybe that's a little tiny snapshot, a little tiny picture of what work will be like in heaven. And maybe that's just a little tiny picture of what work was like for Adam in the garden, in full fellowship with God, unhindered by sin. Enjoyable. We were created for the ground. We were created for the good of the world. We were created to work the world. And if the image of the Garden of Eden is supposed to be a small little area inside of Eden where Adam is given the task to work it and to keep it, to cultivate it. And the idea could be, by good and necessary consequence deduced, that Adam was to enlarge this paradise, this garden, until it covered the entire world. So that's the man. But let's talk about the garden. Verse 9 through 15. 
or verse 8 through 15. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed, and the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the ground were the tree of the life of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. It goes on to tell us about the garden. In verse 15 it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to make it, to work it and to take care of it. Here's where I'd like to delve into what I like to say, or not necessarily there on the surface, but if we look at the rest of Scripture, if we examine it, then we can see that what is being told to us here about the Garden of Eden is that the Eden, the Garden of Eden, is a temple mountain. The Garden of Eden is a place in which God fellowships with his people. In the book of Ezekiel, it's described as a mountain. In fact, G.K. Beale, one of the foremost biblical theologians today, gives nine reasons the Garden of Eden is a temple, that we should see it as a temple, a place of worship, a place of unhindered fellowship with God. And I'm going to give those to you this morning. Later in the Old Testament, the temple was the place of God's special presence, where he made himself known and felt to Israel. That is exactly how his walking with Adam and Eve in the garden is depicted in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Number two, Adam is placed in the garden to cultivate Abad and to keep Samar in Genesis 2, 15. The same two words are translated elsewhere, serve and guard. And when they appear together, they are either referring to Israelites serving or obeying God's word, or more usually to the job of the priest in guarding and keeping the temple. Elsewhere, Adam is portrayed dressed in the clothes of the high priest, functioning as a high priest in Ezekiel chapter 28. Number three, the tree of life served as a model for the lampstand, which was clearly shaped as a tree that was placed both in the tabernacle and in the temple. Number four, Israel's later temple was made with wood carvings of flowers, palm trees, etc., meant to recall Eden's garden brilliance. Pomegranates were also placed at the bottom of the two stone pillars in the temple. Number five, the entrance to the temple was to the east, on a mountain facing Zion, just as the end-time temple prophesied in Ezekiel is. Well, it turns out, the entrance to Eden was from the east, and in some places pictured as being on a mountain. Number six, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... And the Ark of the Covenant were both, uh, both were accessed or touched only on pain of death. Also, both were sources of wisdom. Number seven, just as a river flowed out of Eden, so a river is supposed to flow out of the end time temple, so also a river flowed out of the temple and Jerusalem. Number eight, this one requires uh, some serious argument. But just as there was a tripartite sacred structure to the temple, Beale discerns a tripartite structure to creation with Eden, Eden standing at the center of the Holy of Holies. So the temple, we see, we know, we've heard about it, we've, we've learned lessons. Uh, 
The Holy of Holies is the most inter, most central place. Then there's the holy place outside of the Holy of Holies. Then there is the courtyard. Well, if you look at creation, we're told that God made a garden in Eden. And so, in Eden is the garden. Then the rest of Eden. Then the rest of the world. So it's structured as a temple. And Ezekiel chapter 28 refers to Eden as the holy mountain of God, which everywhere else in the Old Testament is temple and tabernacle language. Why is it important that we see the Garden of Eden as a temple, as a place of communion with God? Well, importantly, because that means that Adam has a role to play in the garden to establish that role. So many of us think of Adam being in the Garden of Eden as a, uh, as a, as a leisure uh, opportunity, as a place in which Adam simply gets to enjoy perfect temperatures, tropical paradise, fruit everywhere that he can eat. He doesn't have to do anything. He's just sleeping all day, lounging about. He's enjoying paradise. I'm not trying to downplay the wonder and the beauty and the amazement of the temple of Eden, of the worship and the communion that Adam had with God, but Adam was given a task, a role to play in that garden. And it's a role that we have come to understand and appreciate being applied to Christ. And that is that Adam was the prophet, the priest, and the king of the garden temple on Eden. Jonathan Gibson, in his article in the book Worship on Earth as it is in Heaven, says this, Created from the dust of the earth as a man, yet made in the image of God as his son, Adam was placed in the garden temple of Eden as God's prophet, priest, king, to work it and to keep it. As a prophet, he was to speak God's word to God's world. Now, maybe some of you are saying, what is, how did, where do we get that from? Well, here's a question for you. When the snake slithers up to Eve and says, hey, you can't eat from that tree, she says... No, God told us that we, are not, we can eat from any tree in the garden, but we're not to eat from the tree at the center of the garden called the knowledge of, the good, and evil, of good and evil. Well, who told her that? Because those words were said to Adam. Adam was the prophet. Adam spoke the word of God to his wife, Eve. As priest, he was to guard God's divine sanctuary and mediate God's blessing to the world. This is important for us to understand because as we approach Genesis 3, and you see that the Garden of Eden is this temple sanctuary and that Adam is called to guard it, how does a snake slither in? How does a snake come into this place that Adam is supposed to be guarding and keeping and whisper lies into his wife's ears while he's standing right there? 
And then, as priest, he was to guard God's divine sanctuary and mediate God's blessing to the world. As king, he was to rule God's world. What does this mean? Well, if we see Adam as not some unique individual character, but if we see Adam as a representative of humanity, then it tells us that we were created to fellowship with God on the good earth. He created us and the world so that he could come down to the world and dwell in the midst of us. That we could enjoy him and he could enjoy us. We were created to worship God and enjoy him forever. Not in heaven, in our bodiless spirits, but here on earth. An earth that is covered with new creation glory. There's one last thing that we could say about our passage this morning that I think helps us to understand why did God create the world and why did God create us. And it's the last words of this passage, verse 16 and 17. Once God placed Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it, in this temple where he could enjoy perfect, unhindered fellowship with God, that he was to guard and keep it, he was to be the prophet, the priest, and the king of this garden temple. The Lord God gave Adam a commandment. He commanded the man, You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. One thing that I want to mention here is the question is often given, why did God give this test if he knew that Adam would fail? There's so much uh, lack of being able to understand the grace of God in this. You see, people, people see this as God setting up Adam to fail, tricking Adam. But God did not get rid of all of the fruit-bearing trees in the garden and only leave the garden of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and waited for the, the Adam and Eve to get hungry and say, well, this is the only thing we can eat. We might as well eat it. We are told that God made plants in the garden which, interestingly enough, were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Same words that Eve said about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God did not say, you cannot eat from any tree. He said, you're free to eat from all the trees in the garden, but not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, for a very long time, theologians have been looking at Scripture through the eyes of what we call a covenant. And what is being told to us here in chapter 2, verse 16 and 17 of Genesis is that God is entering into a covenant with Adam. In order for there to be a covenant, there has to be four things. There has to be two parties, a promise, a condition, and a penalty. And even though the word is not directly used here, berit, the word for covenant, later on down in, in redemptive history, 
the, the, the writers of the Old Testament would look at this moment and they would see it as a covenant. The parties of this are Adam and his posterity and God. The promise that God is giving to Adam, we've talked a lot about in relation to the seventh day, is the physical, spiritual, and eternal life he has for Adam. Not only is it figured, it's not only is it shown, not only is it put forward to Adam in the seventh day, but it's also given to Adam in the tree of life. The condition that God requires of Adam is perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience. And the penalty is also the reverse of the promise, physical, spiritual, and eternal death. When God said, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when you eat of it, you will surely die, God was not saying that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is poisonous. God was not saying that if you eat of that tree, you're going to die because it's not good for you. God was saying, the penalty for doing what I have not commanded you to do, to going against my commandment, is physical. You will die. Spiritually, you will die. And eternally, you will die. This is what theologians have called the covenant of works. The covenant of works is a theological phrase which speaks of the pre-fall agreement between God and Adam in which Adam was promised blessing and life upon obedience to the terms of the covenant and cursing and death should he disobey the terms of the covenant. And this is what's important for us to see about the covenant of works. Adam had the ability to obey. Adam had the ability to not obey. Adam had a choice. Us now in our fall, we have a choice. But we always choose sin because the image of God in us has been shattered, has been corrupted, has been distorted. And so in this covenant of works, Jonathan Gibson continues in his book, Worship on Earth as it is in Heaven. As God's son in his specific roles of prophet, priest, and king, Adam was called to worship God through his word. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. It was a call to adore and acknowledge the goodness and greatness of God. His goodness was seen in the invitation to eat from every tree of the garden, trees that were pleasant to the eye and good for food. His greatness was seen in the prohibition to eat from one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a sign that God alone was good and man was to have no other gods before him. And some, it was a command to know God and enjoy him forever. To know God and enjoy him forever. There's a lot of talk that's been asked about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Is this a tree that's magical and when you eat of it, you instantly know what is good and what is evil? I think what is more clearly being put forth on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the choice that is created by God's covenant with Adam. He says to, God, to Adam, you may eat from any of the trees, but you cannot eat from this one. 
And it is when the serpent comes and he tells Eve, did God really say? And Eve begins to say, well, maybe I could eat from this tree. She has entered in to her own human volition and will. Her will is no longer surrendered to the will of God, to the word of God. She's making an autonomous human choice. She's saying, God doesn't decide. I will decide. And that's that's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is. We were created to fellowship with God on earth forever. The Garden of Eden is a snapshot of that destiny, one that points us forward. The man in the garden called to worship God and enjoy him forever will be dashed to pieces at the feet of presumed human autonomy. But a covenant came before the covenant of works, and eternity passed. It's called the covenant of redemption. And the covenant of redemption is the agreement made between the members of the Trinity in order to bring us salvation. We find allusions to it in several biblical texts. Under this covenant, the Father plans redemption and sends the Son in order to save His people. The Son agrees to be sent and to do the work necessary to save the elect. And the Spirit agrees to apply the work of Christ to us by sealing us into salvation. Charles Hodge and his uh, systematic theology devises eight promises the Father gave to the Son in the covenant of redemption. And I think these eight promises are good for us to hear because they help us to see that even though what is pointed towards beyond the covenant of works is lost, is dashed to pieces by Adam and our first parents in the garden, God, his intention, even before creation, was always to save us through Christ, his son. These eight promises the father gave to the son in the covenant of redemption. God said to the son, I will give you a purified church. God said to the son, I will give you the spirit without measure. God, the father, promised the son that he would be ever present to support him. God the Father promised the Son that he would deliver him from death and exalt him to his right hand. God the Father promised the Son that he would have the Holy Spirit to send to whomever he will. Promised that all the Father gave to him would come to him and none of these would be lost. God the Father promised the Son that multitudes would partake of his redemption and his messianic kingdom. And God the Father promised the Son that he would see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. These are the things that the Father promised the Son before he ever took the dust of the earth and blew into it the breath of life and man became a living being. And those of us who have believed in Christ today are the recipients of the benefits of these promises. 
We have inherited our true destiny as people created in the image of God. That we are now endowed and dwelled by the Holy Spirit, which is for us a down payment of the future that awaits us to worship God and enjoy Him forever. Not on an ethereal, spiritual, heavenly place, but here on earth in our resurrected, glorified bodies. We will worship God and we will enjoy Him forever without end. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for creating us in your image. Thank you for giving us the joy of work. Thank you for creating us to be with you, to enjoy you, and to worship you. We pray now, Lord, in these days that we would abide in Christ and through abiding in Christ have fellowship with you in our daily lives. But we also pray, Lord, that as we continue to fellowship with you, that we would more and more look forward to the day in which that will be unhindered, that fellowship will be unbroken, that we will always perfectly sense your presence amongst us, with us, in us, and for us. And we know, Lord, that all of this is only possible because you decreed before the foundation of the world, before the first moment of time, that you would, knowing that we would fall into sin, send your Son, Jesus Christ, into this world. The second Adam, our prophet, priest, and king. That in his death, burial, and resurrection, in his body, which is the temple, you would reunite us to you. That through Jesus Christ, we would experience now a foretaste of that unhindered fellowship and look forward to the day in which we will have it in whole. We pray, Lord, for all those who do not have this salvation that you would that you would help them to see that they were too created to worship you and enjoy you forever and that you would lead them guide them and draw them to Jesus Christ your son it's in Christ's name we pray amen